checking out Real Talk Personal Finance. Shit's about to get real. Cashflow King with you today. And today in episode 26, we got a quick one. Passive Real Estate Investing Miniseries Q&A. Thanks so much to all of our listeners for checking out the show. As always, please feel free to share it with a friend, family member, or coworker if you'd be so kind. Five-star ratings and reviews are always appreciated. This episode will conclude our Passive Real Estate Investing Miniseries. We had a few questions, not a ton, but just a few questions come in for the show as a result of the past several shows that we've done on passive real estate investing. So hopefully you've been enjoying those. Let's go ahead and jump right into the questions today. This will probably be a fairly quick episode. First one, we had a question come in about understanding the difference between cash on cash and internal rate of return. So we try to keep things as high level as possible on the show, but these are a couple of the metrics that we touched on when we went through some of the syndication-related material. Generally speaking, cash on cash is something that is viewed, especially when you're looking at pretty much the first 12 months or if you're contemplating an investment, what is that going to look like over a 12-month period? Typically, that's going to be net cash flows coming into you divided by the amount of dollars invested into the particular project. So for example, super hypothetical example, let's say over the course of one year, you were going to buy, forget about syndications for a second, let's say you were going to buy a single family rental property, and it was going to have positive cash flows of $1,000 over the course of a year, and you put $10,000 as a down payment and closing cost to purchase that property, you would simply take the $1,000 of net cash flows divided by the $10,000 that you had invested, and you would come up with a 10% cash on cash return. That's obviously an overly simplified example, but that's how that would be viewed. And when you're looking at or talking about an IRR or an internal rate of return, typically we're looking at that over a time period that's probably going to be greater than one year. And that does have the impact of the different timing of different cash flows incorporated into that. So we're going to look at a period of time that's probably longer than one year, and we're going to look at any and all cash outflows and cash inflows to come up with that number. So it's going to take into account all cash flows during the entire holding period, not necessarily just for a one-year time period. And so there's some really cool calculators out there where maybe not so much for the cash on cash return, but if you want to plug and play with the internal rate of return, you can do that with an Excel function and a spreadsheet, but you can also use different websites. There's one of them out there called Dinky Town, and no, it's not a triple X rated site. Although if you mistype it, you might end up with something that you weren't expecting. So be prepared for that. But D-I-N-K-Y town, dinkytown.net, I believe is a website that you can use that has numerous different calculators. Many of them are investment related. There's some that are savings related, some that are with regard to debt pay down and certain types of financing. There's all kinds of calculators on that website and you should be able to find an IRR calculator. And so if you were going to run, let's say some projections or even at the conclusion of an investment, you can say, all right, I put in X number of dollars. You typically enter that in as a negative and that was an outflow. And then over this, these different dates or different time periods, these were the inflows. Maybe it was net op or net cash flow from operations. Maybe you had a partial cash out refinance and a portion of your principal was returned to you during the length of the investment. And then typically at the very end, you're going to usually have a very large number that comes in, which is probably going to be a combination of a return of your capital or the rest of your capital, plus any profits on the back end. 
And depending on when those things happen and the timing of those, the calculator will crunch out for you an internal rate of return. So again, it takes into account the timing of those cash flows, and normally that's going to happen over longer than a one-year time period. And there's different metrics that you can use. One is not necessarily always better than the other. In fact, you probably should be using multiple metrics, which is probably one of the reasons why, in the context of syndications, a lot of the syndicators will use multiple metrics to talk about the different return characteristics of a particular project or a particular fund. So great question. We had another one come in. Let's see if I can pull it up here. Give me one second. Go back to it. Okay. What happens when housing prices drop, causing rents to drop, and you can no longer cover your debt payments with rents? Well, that's a fucking doozy, isn't it? Jeez, man. Um, what happens when housing, this is a very pessimistic question. So first of all, they, they phrase it as when housing prices drop and they're assuming that that's absolutely going to happen and it very well could, but I guess they have a crystal ball causing rents to drop. So just be, it's, that's an interesting point. Just because housing prices go down, if they were to go down, and if you look back over history, this has actually happened, uh, most recently and notably probably back in 2008, 2009, Rents don't always actually go down. And in a lot of cases, and you can look this up and talk to others in the real estate space out there, rents actually went up. A lot of people, for one reason or another, either chose not to purchase or maybe they couldn't purchase, so on and so forth. And based on just simple economics, it's a supply and demand issue where oftentimes that means that rents actually would do the opposite of what you might initially expect, and they would do the inverse. They would actually go up, and they did in a lot of cases. So you could have where the values decline, but rents instead of dropping actually could increase. And that's not always necessarily going to be the case, but that has happened in relatively recent history. And so it's not always that the, both of those things are going to move in, in tandem. I guess, like I said, they could. But let's just say, you know, if you look at the environment we're in today, prices are way, way up. Rents generally have gone way, way up. So I think I understand where this person is coming from. And so in theory, yes, prices could go down and rents also could go down. But remember, you control the property with cash flow. So we went into this, I think, at, in some length during the turnkey rentals episode. When you look at all the different components that are going to factor into sort of the math and the projections here that you're going to have to account for. So you're going to be accounting for different things in, in terms of maintenance and reserves and potentially debt service and all those other things. And after you do that, you should still have, hopefully, a positive cash flow, which is sort of a buffer there that allows you to control the property and maintain making, if you're financing the property, the debt service payments on that particular property. And so as long as that's the case, you inherently have sort of a built-in buffer there if what this person is suggesting the prices and the rent simultaneously drop. If both of those things happen, first of all, as a cash flow investor, if you're in real estate, you really shouldn't give a shit necessarily about the prices unless you're looking to exit. Uh, but if you're looking at, for example, a long-term buy and hold single family rental property, for example, and you're going to hold that thing for decades, then if the price goes up versus the price goes down, you don't necessarily, I mean, of course you probably care, but it doesn't really matter in terms of your month to month cash flow. Now, if the rents go down to their point simultaneously and you're not able to, according to their question here, cover debt payments, well, then you have a whole separate other problem, okay? And that is 
it's a good question, I guess, because it brings up an inherent risk in real estate investment. That is a real risk, and different people will handle that differently. So first and foremost, you want to control the property with cash flow and hopefully have a positive cash flow as a surplus that will initially serve as your buffer against that potential issue. So that's number one. And then number two, in the context of your overall portfolio, you may have other portions of your portfolio. Let's say you're in single families and you're also in syndications and maybe you know you have positive cash flow from one portion of the portfolio if needed that could subsidize and offset potentially negative cash flow on the other side of the portfolio. Now, I wouldn't say that that should be your investment strategy, but if you build a robust enough portfolio, then you can pretty much weather different types of storms. So you could always use one portion of the portfolio to help offset the other, right, if you're fairly diversified and somewhat balanced in your approach. But even more than that, I would say the real number two would be having cash reserves. And I know we've talked about that on the show before. That's going to mean different things to different people. But you may want to make sure that you have a certain number of months or years or however conservative or not you choose to be of debt service payments tucked away to the side where you have the liquidity if needed to pretty much absorb any sort of storm. And I don't think that rents will go down Well, first of all, I don't think they're going to come down all that much to begin with. I don't think that they'll continue to increase at the rate that they have, but who who knows? I don't have a crystal ball, and I don't pretend to have one. Apparently, this person has one. But even if that were to happen for a relatively short period of time, generally speaking, rents overall will usually go up and will usually increase over time so that even if you had a temporary setback where that was the case, number one, you have a positive cash flow that might get squished a little bit, right? And maybe go from positive cash flow to break even or really positive cash flow to minorly positive cash flow. You have a little bit of a buffer in there. That's number one. Number two, you could have other components of your portfolio to offset if needed. And then a, number two slash three would be having adequate and ample cash reserves to weather that storm until markets ultimately rebound, until rents are back on the rise, until you're able to build that buffer back into the portfolio. But make no mistake about it, that's definitely a risk in terms of investing in real estate, especially if you're investing using debt and you have leverage. It's not the right answer for everybody, but it is something that you want to be aware of and you want to make sure that you're not over leveraged so that you can maintain control in all situations, including in a potential situation like this. So great question. The next one is about, I think they're talking about the sort of the the storage funds and some of the syndication stuff. Why would I invest in a self-storage type of syndication fund if I can simply buy self-storage units where I live? So that's a good question, and it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to invest in a self-storage syndication fund. You may choose that that's not the route for you, but I would say that first and foremost, going back to the whole risk versus return type of idea in the spectrum there is, I mean, if you think about it, in your local community, if you were to buy a self-storage facility, first of all, you have to be able to do that. So whether you're one person or if you're pooling resources with other people, you have to have the buying power to be able to do that. And maybe you do. Maybe you have the cash or maybe you have the cash in terms of a down payment and enough credit that you can go out and get a loan for the rest of it. And that might work just fine. But remember, you're essentially buying an operational business there. And you can make an argument that through things like technology and maybe you hire some staff that it can sort of be an absentee owner type of situation where you don't need to be directly involved. Maybe you're not going to be hands-on 24-7 necessarily, but you are still in a lot of ways running a business by doing that. And that doesn't mean that that's a good or bad thing, but that's you know what you would be in for. 
I think it would be very difficult to scale that. So while you certainly could do that over time, more than likely you're not going to be able to acquire and run dozens and dozens or even hundreds of operations like this, right? You're not going to be able to remove yourself entirely from that. And again, I think you could, but as far as the risk goes, you're in one community, you're in one market, you're in one location, you're probably going to use a disproportionately large percentage of your investment capital and probably take on, if you needed to do some sort of debt financing, a disproportionately large amount of leverage and debt for one particular self-storage facility in one particular location in one particular market. I'm not saying you should or shouldn't do that. Again, we don't give advice on the show, right? We give ideas, information, education, right? Entertainment. That's what we do here. But I think that that's quite risky versus being able to take a certain amount of money and place it with an experienced operator that has experienced teams that they work with that you can leverage where you can take the same investment dollars, not necessarily even have to get a loan per se, assuming you're using cash, right, to do that, and benefit from the economies of scale that working with some of those experienced operators and syndicators and funds and whatnot might be able to provide to you. And I don't know who said this, but I remember hearing a phrase out there. I think it goes something to the effect of, why do more work than you need to to earn less than you could or something like that? And really, if you can take a certain amount of investment dollars, like me personally, I would rather write a check and go play fucking Call of Duty, okay? Because I'm lazy. I don't want to run a self-storage facility. I want to diversify my dollars. I want to leverage economies of scale, but I don't want to be the one doing it. And I don't want to be just in one market, in one location with an exorbitant amount of risk inherent in that one project. Some people, if this is their thing, their bread and butter, they want to build a big business out of it, by all means, go for it. If that's you, you know, if you think that's going to work for your situation, I just think for the vast majority of people that have another business or a day job or other, you know, hobbies, family, whatever they want to do with their time, They might want to spend it in other ways or have other commitments that don't necessarily allow them adequate time to spend in that one particular self-storage facility. So one answer is not going to be right or wrong for everybody. You have to figure out what works for you. But I think the vast majority of people like the idea of investing in real estate. I know I do, but they don't necessarily get excited about the idea of running the operational businesses that come with owning certain types of real estate, whether it be self-storage, short-term rentals, long-term rentals, whatever. And that's where some of these other avenues and models and things that we've talked about in the passive real estate investing mini-series can come into play for those that want their dollars invested there, but they don't want their time or an exorbitant amount of their time invested there. They want to be able to do other things and invest as passively as possible. Another really good question. I think those were the three that we had that came in. So thank you to everybody that sent in questions to the show. Again, if you have a question or ideas for an upcoming show, you can email those to realtalkpersonalfinance at gmail.com. Again, that's realtalkpersonalfinance at gmail.com. Thanks again for tuning in and listening to the show. I believe, unless we get a bunch more questions, uh, that this will conclude the Passive Real Estate Investing mini-series. Thanks again for checking it out. If you're just catching this episode and you haven't listened to the past several episodes on the Passive Real Estate Investing mini-series, I would strongly encourage you to do that. We had a really good episode, last episode with Odog on multifamily syndications. That was a lot of fun. I think he enjoyed it as well. Hopefully you did too. If you haven't listened to it, check it out. Thanks again for listening. We will see you in the next episode. Check the mic and make sure it sound right, boys.